Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your word that you have uh, spoken to us, that you have given to us in writing. And we pray this morning that if, as, we, as we open it and consider it this morning, uh, Father, that we would not just hear and understand the, the meaning of the things that we hear, but Lord, that we that your Holy Spirit would apply these things to our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would take them to heart. And Father, that you would uh, work in such a way that we would believe these things and, and do them in our lives. We thank you, but we, we ask this, God, not just for the betterment of our own sake, but God, that your name could be glorified. That we as your church could walk in holiness and righteousness in all that you have given and provided for us through our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this uh, just yesterday I was talking with my son, Ben, and we were talking about how people view the Word of God and how oftentimes, you know, God's Word gives us examples in the pages of Scripture of how to live or, or sometimes how not to live. Uh, some of the times those negative examples, but those that are not familiar with God's word sometimes want to take all of those things as as God's uh, examples of how we ought to live. But that's not true. And we, we see examples, even as we've been talking about trials in life and, and what those look like and how God uses those trials in our life to test our faith. We see both positive and negative examples in scripture. Uh, positive example obviously being someone like Abraham where God comes to him and tells him to take his only son, his, his, his covenant son, Isaac, and sacrifice him, give him to the Lord. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't even miss a beat. He goes and he takes this strapping young man uh, to a faraway place and he puts him on an altar and gets ready to sacrifice him. And you know the story that God provides the lamb instead in his place uh, to take that, to, to die. And so we see that sense of a, of a godly man whose faith is tested and who's proven true. And so James begins his letter by telling us to rejoice in the trials that we encounter in life because we, we know that the testing of our faith, these, these trials will strengthen our character, promoting endurance or steadfastness and eventually maturity, even in receiving the crown of life. But, but unfortunately, trials don't always produce maturity. Do they? You know, we think about the Israelites and how God took them out of Egypt and took them to the promised land. And there at the promised land, they sent in 12 spies and to sort of check out the land and to see what the Lord has said and to see if it was true. And sure enough, they go into the land and they find this wonderful land in Numbers chapter 13. And they come back and they report back to the people and they said, it is everything that God has said, but there are giants in the land and we cannot take, uh, we cannot take these, these people. But so the people hear the reply of the spies or at least 10 of the spies. Two of the spies are like, yeah, we can do it. The Lord our God will see us through. But the people listen to the 12 spies, and this is what Numbers 14 says. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry 
And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. And so what they said was, this is that these trials are too much for us. And, and if we are not careful, we sometimes can do that as God brings those trials into our lives. If we're not careful, the testings we encounter in the circumstances of our life may become temptations to us. When our circumstances are difficult, we might find ourselves being tempted to complain against God for those things we're going through in life, questioning His love, and even at times resisting His will, and saying, Lord, why are you taking me through these things? So instead of, of growing deeper in faith and love, and, and longing for the crown of life that is promised us, as we saw in verse 12, we blame God for our troubles. But James wants us to see that while God allows us to go through these trials to strengthen our faith and to test our faith, God never, God never, God never tempts us to sin. You see, James is driving home that point that you cannot blame God for your sin no matter how difficult your circumstances are in life. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what James says in verse 13. He gives a command to the people. This is in the imperative in the Greek. It's a command. He said, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. But being the pastor that he is, James doesn't just simply state that command, but then he begins to explain the reality of temptation in the life of a believer. And, and he gets to the heart of the matter as he addresses several things. First of all, he tells us how we are to respond in temptation. Then he tells us who is responsible for temptation or what is the source of temptation. And then what is the nature, what are the consequences of temptation? And then how are we to stand in the midst of our temptation? And originally I thought we'd just be looking at verses 13 through 15, but we're going to look all the way through the end of verse 18 this morning as we, as we look at these things. And so let's look at James chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 13, as we look at the trials and the temptations of our life, and particularly... As we look at responding to temptation, James tells us that when we encounter temptation that we must resist the desire to blame God. Now that may sound strange to us sitting in church on a Sunday morning that we would blame God. But how often have you heard people say something like this? Well, you know, if God is sovereign and if he oversees all things and if everything happens according to the counsel of his will then it must stand to reason that we had no choice but to sin. God had already determined that. Some would even go so far as to make it sound as if God is the author of sin. But even if a person doesn't go that far, at a minimum, God allowed that temptation. And so isn't it his fault? And so we blame God for our, our sin in the midst of the trials of life that he brings. Or maybe we put it a different way. We'll say, well, this person has been a trial to me. Or these circumstances have been a trial to me. And God is the one that allowed those things to come into my life. So is that not his fault? 
Or maybe some people would say something like this. They'll say, well, you know, God's created me this way. I, I have these desires and I have, you know, I, I'm just sort of wired this way. And, you know, so, you know, God's the one that made me this way. And so it's not my fault that I give in to this sin. This is just naturally who I am. And so in many ways... We blame God. So some who meet the trials blame and attack God, accusing him sometimes of even being malicious. They say that he tests them too severely or he pushes them to the point in which they will fall. And so when they face that test, they, they don't endure and they, they give up, being uh, uh, thinking that inevitably they have no choice but to give up because they can't go through this. And, you know, in some ways, this should not surprise us, because in our fallen human nature, is it not our natural tendency to blame other people for our sin? I mean, this is as old as the fall itself. You know, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and God came to them and he came to the man and he says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam say? Adam says, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And so God goes to the woman and the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And what does the woman say? The serpent deceived me and I ate. So in other words, it's everybody else's fault except mine. So blaming others for our sin is not uncommon, unfortunately. And Adam and Eve uh, blame not only each other, but even Adam in what he said, he in essence, sort of blamed God. God, if you had not given me this woman, if you had not given me this wife who led me astray, then I wouldn't be in this mess. So really, in one sense, God, this is your fault. But James tells us that that instinct to blame God is absurd and is not something we should do. He said, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for or because God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So God is and does the exact opposite from evil. God is beyond the reach of temptation. I, I like how one person put it. I don't know if it's grammatically correct. But he said God is untemptable. And uh, God is insusceptible to evil. God has never had any... Uh, evil has never had any appeal for God. He... His very nature is so opposed to sin that it cannot possibly tempt anyone. The way John puts this in, in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 16 is, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So it's not something that God causes in us. So this means that God is not in any sense the author of evil. Although God has decreed that evil which arises in his creatures, not in himself, is part of his grand purpose for human history, he is not the author of evil. On the contrary, James says that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, as we see in verse 17. God has no sinful desires. God never changes. And this is why James says that if we blame God uh, that... Uh, for our own sin, we are, see, we are deceiving ourselves. So 
God is not only not the author of sin, but God is not against us. He is not trying his hardest to make you fail when he sends trials and tests into your life. God is not making it difficult for us to trust him. He is not against us. He is good. And this is something we need to remember. And here sitting in church on Sunday morning, we may go, well, yes, of course. But how many times as we go through the trials and the difficulties of life, do we sometimes feel like the hand of God is against us? And, and how easy it is to, to question whether God loves us and whether he is for us. Everything he does, though, is wise and holy and perfect and right. And we can trust him. So, so James, you know, having addressed this common response that sometimes people might have to temptation, continues by trying to help us to recognize what the source of temptation is. Where does temptation come from? He not only wants us to see that our adversary in the midst of temptation is not God, um, which and, and what's interesting is James doesn't even blame the devil. You know, so the old Flip Wilson saying, you know, the devil made me do it. James doesn't even give credence to that. But he wants us to see that sin arises in us because we have a sinful nature, uh, not because God somehow tempts us to sin. Our adversary and temptation is, it's us. It's us. You know, our, our human fallen nature is tempted to say it's everybody else's fault but us. And James says, no, not at all. He said, actually, you're the problem. Look at verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. You know, when we give in to temptation, it's because our desires lure and entice us. Now, notice how James puts the responsibility for temptation back on us and nowhere else. You know, the point is, is that no power on earth, Satan included, can make us want to give in to sin. We have to want to do it ourselves, however great that seduction is upon us. People sin because they want to sin. We sin because we want to sin. It comes from our desires. Now, that word desire in and of itself is not intrinsically evil. I mean, it's used in other places in Scripture where Jesus says that he desires to eat the Last Supper with his disciples in Luke chapter 22. Or in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, Paul says that he desires to see the Thessalonians. Those are not bad things. But in many places in the Bible, including here in James, chapter 1, the word desire here literally means to burn with heat. And it does have that connotation of being an, an evil desire. So, so some translations have translated this lust because it literally means to burn with heat. The problem with that is, is that in our modern culture, lust seems to always have a sexual connotation to it. And this word does not necessarily, it's not limited by that. It actually means any sinful craving. So the desire that James is speaking of here is anything that's contrary to God's revealed will for our lives. So initially, temptation begins with a desire, but the desire in and of itself is not sin. You know, temptation is not evil. You can be tempted and not sin. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ when he was in the wilderness after his baptism. Satan came to him and he tempted him. And yet we know that Jesus is, is without sin. So temptation is not the same thing 
as sinning, but temptation does lead to sin because our desires drag us away and, and entice us in that it draws us into thinking that the fulfillment of the desires that we want will somehow be pleasurable. Now, these are sort of fishing terms, if you would. Uh, if you think about a fish that's swimming in a straight course and then he's drawn off towards something that seems uh, attractive. He's lured, no pun intended, he's lured you know, towards that bait. It might be a shiny lure that is seeking to draw that fish in or it might be a juicy worm on a hook. But he's lured in and he's enticed thinking that that looks good, not understanding that that hook, that that bait has a hook embedded in it that will get them. And what James is talking about here are the desires that wage war in our hearts and that are constantly seeking to lure us away from Jesus Christ and to entice us to think that whatever the sin is that we're seeking, that it is better than obeying the Lord. And that's what... Satan does with temptations. The focus of Satan's effort is always to deceive us into believing that the passing pleasures of sin are more satisfying than obeying whatever the Lord has given us. Even if it's the trials and the temptations that we are going through, even as difficult as those things are, those things are come from the hand of our Father who, who is good. So we sin because sin begins with our own sinful desires. Sin is the decision or the act of disobedience. It is giving in to temptation. And while we're free to choose our actions as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can obey or we can disobey. We are not free to decide the consequences of our actions. And, and James talks about that, though. He tells us what the outcome is as we give in to temptation. And, and to do this, James uses an interesting parallel of human conception. He says, then, in verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. So, it's when our will is joined with our desire that it gives birth to sin. But James warns that the act of sin is not the end. It doesn't stop there. When we indulge our sinful desires, sin becomes a pattern and eventually a life-dominating force. Unchecked, sin brings death to us if we do not trust the Lord. Look at what he says at the end of verse 15. He said, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see that imagery he's given there? You have the conception, which gives birth to this this child or the, the sin, which then when it fully matures or grows, then results in death, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. It is that, that spiritual death. And so you have that progression of that temptation because of our desires, which gives way to sin, which then gives way to death. And so sin begins as novelty and slips into drudgery and ends in slavery as we are bound in that. As one person put it, he said, sinners are addicted to their way of life. Sin is their fix. They know it's killing them, but they can't do without it. And, and so we, we see that. And James is warning his readers of this because the purpose he is calling us to is to the Lord and to trust him and to look to him in the midst of their temptation and to repent of that sin 
uh, and not uh, instead just give in to that sin and live a habitual life of sin because of the danger of spiritual death. But then he goes on and he tells us how we are to, to triumph over such temptation in verses 16 through 18. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If we are to persevere in the midst of temptation, and particularly in the temptation as we go through those trials in our life, we must not be deceived into thinking that God could in any way uh, be part of that temptation. Uh, to, to do so is to shift the, the blame for our sin upon God, which we like to do, but we will never stand in the midst of our temptation. We must see God for who he is. And I think it's interesting that James, in verse uh, 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But then he goes on later, and in helping us to address that temptation, he really just focuses upon the character of God. He goes, let's just stop and think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. He said, let's look and see what God is like. And the first thing that we see in verse 17 is, is that God is the only source of goodness. He's the only source of goodness. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, Every English version that I've sort of read of this uh, translation of the Greek does it just sort of misses the boat just a little bit. So, so maybe, you know, rather than uh, the Greek just merely repeating itself, saying a good gift and a perfect gift, maybe a more accurate translation may be to say that every act of giving that is good and every perfect gift, every act of giving that is good and every perfect gift is is uh, coming down from the Father of lights. And what, what James is wanting to express here is the completeness of the goodness of God, both what he does and the way he does it. So it's not just that God gives us good gifts, but the way in which he gives us those gifts are good, which is an important reminder for us as Christians, because sometimes we can, uh, we can remember that, okay, I'm in the midst of these trials, I'm going through these difficulties, and I know that this is good, but I, I just don't understand it. So, you know, we might understand that the gift is good, but the way God is doing it, we really question his love and his care for us. But, but James wants us to remember that not only does God give us good gifts, but the way he gives us those gifts are good as well. And also in the context that he's saying here, he's not just talking about temporary material gifts, but he's talking about the spiritual gifts. And he's saying here that God is, is a good giver. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. Now the light, we know that light and darkness correspond to, to good and evil. I'll, I'll just read a couple of verses that sort of signifies that. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Or 1 John 1, 15 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, 1 Timothy six sixteen, The glory of the Lord is called an unapproachable light. 
And so the argument that James is making is, is how can the gifts which are given by a father who is so good can be anything less than good and perfect themselves? And so we see that God is the only source of goodness. But we also see that God is the unchanging source of goodness. In verse 17, where he says that there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, the sun and the moon and the other lights that we encounter are constantly changing. But God never changes. Change is characteristic of created things. But unchangeableness, immutability is a divine attribute. And we read in, in Malachi 3.16 that our God is a God who does not change. We read in Hebrews that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And James is stressing the constancy or the faithfulness of God. God doesn't have one day where he's more good than other. You know, and we might mistakenly think that because we sort of characterize our days by good days or by bad days, right? Well, how's your day today? Oh, it's a pretty good day. Or, well, how's your day doing today? Oh, it's just been terrible. It's just been awful. And we see that constant change in our lives. And we can sometimes mistakenly think then, therefore, God is changing. That he's being more good to us one day than he is in another. And James says, no. Not only is God the only source of goodness, but he is the unchanging source of goodness. And he is the same. And not only that, but he goes on in verse 18 to say that God is the source of the supreme act of goodness. He said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, he, he's sort of playing off the idea he started in verses 13 through 15 about that whole metaphor of childbirth. In verse 15, he talks about how the conception of evil desire gives birth to sin. Well, here uh, he does the same thing. It's not as evident in the English but he said, of his own will, he brought us forth that those words brought us forth really in the Greek mean he gave birth uh, by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. And so what he's saying is, is that through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was this new birth, this regeneration that was done in us as Christians. He took us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son in whom he loves. And, and what he wants us to understand is that God brought James' readers to faith in Christ so that they will become the, the first fruit, sort of the, the down payment on what will eventually happen to all of creation, that God will remove the curse and every hint and trace and stain of sin. That God has made his people the first fruits. They are the people that are set aside for himself. James wants his readers to truly grasp the supreme honor of their position in Jesus Christ. Truly the goodness that God has shown to his people. Thomas Manton, in speaking of the relationship between God and his people, he put it this way. He said, the world are his goods, but you as Christians are his treasure. Did you hear that? That the world are God's goods, but you are his treasure. Do you feel that way? When you're in the midst of the trials and the temptations of life, as God is testing your faith to show 
that it is true like Abraham, where he takes him and he says, take that which you love the most and I want you to sacrifice that upon the altar. God wants us to be reminded that he is truly good in the best possible sense of that word. The, the world are, are his goods, but you are his treasure. It's sort of like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, these are the words that we need to remember as we prepare to encounter the trials and the temptations of this life. When we go through those trials and we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, we are to be reminded of already what all he has done for us. And if he has done this, will he not surely carry this on to completion until we receive the fullness of the promises? We sang that we trust in every promise of his word. And we know that one day that uh, we will receive the, the fullness of our salvation as we go to heaven. So as we walk upon this earth, as we go through the trials of this life, let us not forget that our Savior is the one who has suffered uh, in every way. He is the one that was in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat the drops of blood, saying, Father, if you would, take this cup from me. But the one who said, but you know, I will go to the cross. And he went to the cross and suffered the ultimate uh, payment for our sin. That we might know the true love of God. And to know that when we go through those trials and those difficulties of life, that those, although it's hard for us to understand, is an expression of God's goodness and his love for his people. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment and just uh, have a time of silence as we meditate upon the word that we've heard preached this morning. Oh Lord, as we come before you today, we thank you for the word that is spoken to us. And God, I don't know what trials or difficulties that our people are going through or the, the temptations that they are facing. But Lord, I pray for us this day that we would uh, give our, our hearts to trust you in the midst of those times. That God, we would not accuse or blame you, but we would see already the work that you have done in our lives and that we would give our, our whole hearts totally to you. Lord, I especially want to pray for any that might be here this morning that is, is trapped in a life of sin. God, that has given themselves over to a pattern of, of uh, turning away from you. Coming here on Sunday morning and looking so good, but during the week only doing that which pleases themselves. Oh God, I pray that you might set them free from this bondage of sin to walk in obedience to you. Lord, we thank you that you, that everything you give us is good. Help us, O oh Lord, to have the proper perspective of the circumstances of our lives. Let us not be driven by our emotions, by our passions, and by the things that we feel only. But Lord, let, let us be guided by the truth of your word, knowing that you are a God that is not only good, but you are a God who has demonstrated that goodness uh, as you come to earth. And as you died upon the cross and rose again, that we might have eternal life. 
We thank you, O Lord, and praise you for this. And pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.